0: Hello, everyone. Merry Christmas. We're getting ready for a happy new year. Thank you for joining me on this, The Brian Sussman Show, on all audio platforms, as well as YouTube and Rumble. I appreciate you supporting me with your subscription. My first guest when I began my radio show in San Francisco on KSFO in 2002 was Dr. Charlie Self. I called him the man with more degrees than a thermometer, Dr. Charlie Self, our chief historian. Indeed, one of his degrees is from the University of California, where he majored in American history. That was his doctorate, actually. And then, of course, he also went to the Berkeley School of Theology, which is otherwise a rather liberal school of theology. (laughs) But they didn't get to him. He maintained a very conservative course, and he received a Ph.D. in theology as well. He is a noted church historian. He speaks to theological schools all over the United States regarding the history of America and its Christian founders, as well as church history at large. So that's why I brought him in as my very first guest. I wanted to tap his knowledge of history. History is very important because we're seeing a rewriting of history today, aren't we? This is part of the de-evolution of society. This is part of the dysfunction that's hit America and the world. This is part of that, this this entire delusion that seems to be grabbing people by the very throat and tearing their brains out of their minds so they can no longer think. It truly is indoctrination. Karl Marx said something that was very, very important, and I've talked about this numerous times. Perhaps you've heard me say it, perhaps you have not. In either case, it bears repeating. Karl Marx said this, history means nothing. You see, when you remove the historical underpinnings of any society, then there's no memory of the good times. There's no memory of in the case of America, the great, wonderful, deep thinkers that did something unique in all the world's history. They created a constitutional republic based on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are three things, three natural rights that a country had never been founded upon before. And so what is the left quick to do? They'll dismiss the founders as racists. They were all racists. And therefore, they obliterate history. It's like they're taking out a machine gun and just mowing it down. It's a shame. We don't want that to happen. That's why we need voices like Dr. Charlie Self. So when it comes to history and Christmas, it's amazing how much of that history has been lost in contemporary society. Maybe because so many people didn't grow up in the church, or have never attended church, or have never bothered to look at their Bible, or maybe they think, oh, the Bible's just a bunch of make believe stories. When in fact, so many of the accounts in the Bible, including many of the incredible prophecies, are backed through contemporary writings at the time. That these things went down. In other words, the Bible is backed up by history. Some would say it's the most corroborated book of all time. Well, with all that said, let's get to that guest, a very, very special guy. And I want to tell you about some of his writings really quick. I'll go to his internet site which is DrCharlieSelf.com. He's got some wonderful books. I just want to mention really quick. One is The Power of Faithful Focus. That's a 2004 book. Another is Flourishing Churches and Communities. And the most recent book, Life in 5D, A New Vision of Discipleship. All those books are available at DrCharlieSelf.com. That's D-R, Charlie with an I-E, Self, S-E-L-F.com. And now let's bring him in. He's our doctor history. Dr. Charlie Self, it is great to have you on the program. How are you, good friend? Doing so well, and uh, just a
1: wonderful Merry Christmas to our uh, listeners and uh, fellow learners. It's so great to be with you.
0: For years now, I have been interviewing you before each Christmas because I think people want to know the real Christmas story. Is this Is this make-believe? Was there really a Jesus? Was there really a, a Virgin Mary? Did these accounts that we read in the Bible of the early days and, uh, and and years of Jesus really occur? So that's why I've always loved bringing you on my various programs to talk about these things. So here we are. But the Christmas story, Charlie, um, is it based on fact or fiction? Well,
1: what's really wonderful is that both in the Bible and outside the Bible, we have confirmation of the basic facts of the story. Both Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of Luke give us um, windows into this moment, and all of the historical details line up well in terms of the condition of the Roman Empire, in terms of the in terms of the spiritual and social conditions of the day, and we have. Uh, affirmation outside the Bible that, that there really was Jesus of Nazareth, that he really did ultimately die on a cross and become the rabbi of a new religion, and so we have that evidence, and we have, in fact, we have more evidence for this historical fact than we do for for other major religions. Um, then the Bible story itself, um, the details that are given there are very accurate about the, the Roman census about some of the challenges of those days. The one extraordinary fact, and that is this virginal conception or virgin birth, that's a divine miracle to a young woman. And so one has to believe that divine miracles are possible to believe that part of it. But
0: all of the rest lines up well, even if one is skeptical of spiritual things. But can I drill down on one important point here just for a moment? I don't want to lose people right off the bat with this. But I think this is very important. The whole idea of the Son of God, the Messiah, being born of a virgin, that's something that was prophesied about earlier in the Bible in what we call the Old Testament, correct?
1: Yes, and it's in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. And the context there is Isaiah speaking in the midst of huge uh, military and spiritual conflict and giving a promise, giving a promise that there shall be a young woman or a virgin, and the Hebrew word means both. A uh, young woman or a virgin shall conceive and they and will bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And we have an initial preliminary fulfillment of that when it comes when it comes to God working with his ancient people uh, seven centuries before Jesus. And then the the writers of Matthew and Luke say that that is fully fulfilled in the birth of jesus of nazareth and so mary is the final recipient of this prophetic promise
0: the other thing that had to occur if if jesus really is the messiah uh he had to be from the line of david's family correct
1: correct um and this is a conservative figure i will i'm always cautious of of evangelistic speaking or being too uh embellishing things but <laughs> There are nearly 300 very specific prophecies about the, the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus found in the Hebrew Scriptures, the centerpiece of which is Isaiah chapter 53. And um, so what, what you see in Matthew in the first two chapters alone uh, are more than half a dozen that it, phrases like it might be fulfilled or the prophet said this. And so the writers want you to know they're not making this up out of whole cloth, that there's an ancient history behind it. And um, the controversy uh, around it has to do with the impact of who this Jesus is, not whether or not he existed and was important.
0: Well, okay, let's let's move through the Christmas story. And, and if there are some, some associated prophetic scriptures that you'd like to interject as we talk about this— uh, let's go for it. We have the story of, of Mary. She's she's a young woman. She has this incredible encounter with God. God says she's going to give birth. How old was Mary? And talk to us about her engagement with Joseph, because they weren't married. It was an engagement. Talk to us about the, the historical features of that. Mary would have been
1: somewhere between 14 and 15 and perhaps as high as 18 years old. She would have been a young woman. Remember, one became a man or a woman in their teen years, unlike Mm -hmm. modern American adulting at age 40. A little humor there, but more seriously, she's a young woman. (laughs) She's raised in a devout Jewish home, and she was, by Jewish tradition, uh, well-educated for a woman of her day. And she receives this angelic visitation saying that what's conceived of her is coming from the holy spirit she goes i've i've not been with a man i've not been with my husband i'm betrothed i'm engaged mm-hmm. and that usually lasted about a year it was a serious legal and spiritual thing to be engaged and you, you waited until the wedding day before you had any kind of sexual intimacy. So she's astonished at this declaration. She's wondering how this can happen. And the angel tells her this is an act of God. And the one inside of you is going to be the Christ, is going to be the Messiah, is going to be the Son of God. And... Um, her devotion is such that she accepts this. Mary is a tremendous example of humility and being willing to bear such a great divine blessing and burden. Mm-hmm. Matthew's Matthew's account is kind of Joseph's take on it. Hey, Joseph, your wife's going to have a child, and um, this isn't your doing. This is God's doing, and you're going to call. He's going to be Jesus. He's going to save God's people, but he's going to be called Emmanuel meaning the with us God or God with us. And so each of the two Gospels there gives you kind of Mary's uh, unique perspective and then Joseph's perspective, and uh, they're going to raise Jesus uh, in that context.
0: Okay, I want to get to Joseph's initial reaction in just a moment, but you brought something up that I think we need to clarify as long as we've got this time. In the Old Testament, in the Jewish Bible, it says the Messiah's name will be Emmanuel, God with us. You just alluded to that. However, his name wasn't Emmanuel. It ends up being Yeshua, or Jesus. So talk to us about that. Well, the, the fact is that moniker Emmanuel
1: is as much a title as it is a formal name. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is Yeshua, Jesus. Um, it's It comes from the root of Joshua, meaning Savior. Okay. And so his name... Is Jesus of Nazareth, but he is called Emmanuel, God with us, and, and of so course that, even, that's a
0: moniker. But even even along those lines, Emmanuel, God with us, well, Savior, is 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 just just a more descriptive version of Emmanuel, really.
1: Absolutely, they're 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 related. Jesus has many titles, mm-hmm. and the Messiah of Israel. Uh, prophesied in the Hebrew scriptures, fulfilled in the in the Greek or New Testament scriptures, the Messiah has many titles, son of man, son of David, son of God, um, God with us, Lord, King. These are all titles descriptive of the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth.
0: Okay, so let's get to Joseph's initial reaction. He hears that his, his future wife, his betrothed, the woman he's engaged to, tells him she is pregnant. And what I really enjoy about this part of the Bible is it's so human. His reaction is is just so like any of ours might be. Go ahead.
1: And it's it's even more righteous than most of ours would be because uh, he would have every right to disgrace her, to um, really put her in a marginalized place, but he was resolved, the Bible says, to kind of quietly end the betrothal. Uh, that's what the word divorce means in the text, end that betrothal mm-hmm. and act as if you know it hadn't happened, allowing her, by the way, eventually to remarry if she wanted to, allowing him to remarry. See, he was called a righteous man, so he was actually trying to protect her. Now, he would have been surprised, of course, but he was actually trying to protect her and then, of course, he gets an angelic visitation saying, well, "Because it would it would have wife.
0: been a disgrace, right? If she yes. if if she had become pregnant out of out of wedlock, so to speak, that yes. would be a disgrace, and there are certain consequences for that, which were not very pleasant."
1: No, they weren't pleasant. Ah, uh, they're nowhere near as violent as some of the ones we we hear about in certain contexts today. But they would have been very marginalized. It would wow. have been a very difficult social situation for Mary and her very devout Jewish family.
0: So Joseph now has his own. He he receives his own revelation, correct? Yes, he does, and and he's told to take her as your wife.
1: So um, you know, complete. Complete the marriage uh, on time. Meanwhile, take care of her. Continue to be betrothed and complete the marriage on time. And you're going to raise this child. And I think the biblical text says that they raised other children as well. Um, some of our Catholic and Orthodox friends have other opinions about <laughs> Mary's future state. And I'm, and I'm saying that respectfully, <laughs> because there's some amazing Christian, you know, there's wonderful Christians in all these traditions. No, no
0: one could say it more gracefully than you, Dr. History.
1: Uh, but to, to say that, the, the thing he's doing is receiving her fully as his wife, and um, and they're going to raise this child together.
0: There's that moment in time when they're in Bethlehem for a census. And I know from Well, from corroborating evidence from contemporary authors of that time, there really was a census that took place.
1: Yeah, in fact, the best estimates we have of, with all of the refinements in our history and our calculations, somewhere between 3 and 6 BC, or before Christ, is when this took place. Um, We have outside evidence that said not only this census, but other censuses took place during this period of time. So this was not an anomaly or an unusual event. They're going to their hometown. Uh, By the way, just to correct the record, uh, these aren't two homeless people. Okay, Uh, Joseph is a we call him a laboring uh, tradesman or middle class artisan. So he has a small family business, making both furniture and agricultural equipment, maybe some household construction materials, but he's a a tradesman. He's an artisan running a small business. They're not rich. When they get to Bethlehem, there's no room. It's overcrowded with people. And so we always, again, this whole no room at the inn and they have to go to the stable. This wouldn't have been all that unusual with family dwellings overflowing uh, public houses overflowing. They found shelter in a place that was safe and warm and dry. Probably sometime in March or April or September, October, depending on um, one's different uh, interpretation of the text. Um, but it was a, it was a humble moment. But it was also a moment that was not out of keeping with the
0: time. Okay. So again, they were not homeless. No, they were they were coming back to Bethlehem because the census required them to go back to their hometown. Correct? Correct. Okay. So now here they are the manger scene. uh, We always have pictures of a stable and, and uh, there's livestock, there's hay and, and there's little baby Jesus, you know, laying in, you know, this little crib. How accurate might that be given the history of the day? Well,
1: again, read the biblical text clearly. It gives us just enough detail to understand that she, like every other mother, wrapped her newborn baby, swaddled her baby so he would be comfortable and sleep well. Uh, They used a feeding trough that they would have lined with straw and blankets to allow him to sleep. There may have been livestock. There probably were livestock around uh, we'll talk about the wise men from the East. They didn't show up that night. right? Uh, right. <laughs> so it's okay to have these various scenes that kind of combine about two years of history. Yeah. Most of our Christmas scenes put all the stories together, right. but there would have been a few livestock. But again, for the day, remember, people lived in their homes with their animals at times. Mm-hmm. So for the day, this was not that unusual. It was humble, but it was not that unusual.
0: Uh, Dr. History, is it true that Bethlehem was the place where sacrificial animals, animals that would be sacrificed at the temple, were raised?
1: It was one of the locations, correct. Um, When you read about the shepherds in the fields at night, those sheep that they were shepherding would have been, uh, many of them would have been used in the temple sacrifices, which is also one of the reasons why most historians place his birth, either in the early fall or sometime in the early spring.
0: But uh, isn't, I mean, this is the part that uh, I think is fascinating. You know, yeah, Jesus yeah. is is referred to as the sacrifice lamb. So he was born, that was very special, but he also died for the sins of this world, and then was, of course, raised from the dead, and yes. sits at the right hand of the Father. But my, my point is, he was the sacrifice lamb, so... Talk to me about the significance, if any, of him being born in Bethlehem, where the sacrificed lambs were actually raised.
1: Well, you've actually said it so well. Jesus is called the Paschal Lamb or the Lamb of the the, the Passover Lamb sacrificed for. The, he's called the Lamb of God later by his cousin John the Baptist, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. will die for the sins of the world later in the Book of Revelation, as well as the Conquering Lion. He's also called the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. So there's no detail in Scripture unimportant. And we're not allegorizing or fantasizing here when we mm-hmm. understand the context, because even Bethlehem was prophesied six, seven centuries before as the place from which one would come who mm-hmm. was from everlasting. And so you have this fulfillment of prophecy. You have the, 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 the shepherds, and Jesus is later going to be called the good shepherd, Right. which interestingly enough is an old testament reference to god caring for his people as so, opposed to some of the religious leaders who didn't care for his people so when later on when jesus says i'm the good shepherd he's putting himself in contrast to a lot of selfish spiritual leaders so you've hit something really important he's the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world he's also the good shepherd who cares for the people that follow him and uh, all of that's significant so i think There's a reason Luke included that in his narrative. Uh,
0: You you made a good point earlier. The Christmas story—it's as if we've compacted, you know, a couple years of scenes into one scene, very much like Hollywood does to tell a story more effectively and and more succinctly. But let's talk about the wise men. Who who were these people? Where did they come from? Well, these magi are. Um,
1: men that come from uh, Persia and or Babylonia, so you've got to go a lot, hundreds and hundreds of miles to the east.
0: And where would Babylonia be? Where would these locations Iraq be? Iraq and today? Iran. So okay. think
1: Iraq and Iran. Okay. Um, and they, it wasn't three guys, you know, kind of traveling in a stagecoach here. This would have been an entourage. This would have been an entourage of anywhere from 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 30 to 50 people minimum
0: and because the, the trip it, was very long if you're talking iran or iraq that's that's a long journey it's months so yeah. it's, it's what it's one. they see that
1: they see what they see as a star of promise in the sky and and these are folks that uh, don't have a jewish background this is another important thing about this expansion of the people of god The ancient Jewish traditions are absolutely fulfilled to the detail, but they all include expansion to all nations and cultures. And so in their own astrological observations and their own spiritual traditions, this was a sign that they needed to follow this star and worship this king born of the Jews who was going to lead them into far greater wisdom. And so this could—they arrive at Jesus' home somewhere when when this little one is—
0: Not at the manger, you're saying uh, at their home.
1: At their home in Nazareth, they arrive probably when he's about anywhere from 15 to 18 months old. He's a toddler. Hmm. And they come and present these gifts because shortly after this moment is when Herod, the horrific ruler— Of the entire region appointed by the
0: you know something if I may just interject I was reading something in preparation for this interview with you I was reading something historically about Herod and one he was a a real guy and two he was a really bad guy Uh, You can't even
1: um, There's no good comparison Um, He killed almost every one of his relatives. He killed any rival to his power He had Jewish blood, but might as well not have been Jewish for all of his complete lack of piety, complete lack of any kind of religious devotion. He was devoted to one thing, and that was his own power. And so when he found out there was someone of the line of David who people are calling the king of the Jews, he didn't just go target Jesus of Nazareth. He targeted any child under two two and under. So just imagine. And this would have been, I don't want to, again, I'm, I'm going to be conservative, but yeah. this would have been hundreds and hundreds of children in in the region around Bethlehem and then around Nazareth where he was raised. Wow. And so hundreds of children are slaughtered in his lust for power. And that's when the Holy Family is given the is given the guidance by God to go to Egypt temporarily. And that's where Jesus will be raised for a short time until Herod dies.
0: So they, again, this is all in keeping with history. He was a, to say he was bloodthirsty, I mean, would wow. might be an accurate description, might be an understatement. Yes. But Herod was a bad guy. So now Joseph and Mary, sensing the danger, because this yes. proclamation had been made, they took off and they go to Egypt. How long were they in Egypt? Um,
1: Herod dies fairly soon after this moment, so the best estimates are there in Egypt for two to four years maybe, not that long. Um, Herod's death is by today's reckoning around 2 or 3 AD, mm-hmm. so somewhere, Jesus is somewhere in the five or six-year-old range when he returns to his hometown.
0: What else about this Christmas story Um are we, are we not getting right doctor history
1: well i think I, I think most i think those who have a faith do get it right in the importance the christian belief is this is that in jesus of nazareth a real historical figure born at a, at a place and time god forever becomes a human being this is both the belief and the scandal of the christmas story this is not just another prophet this is not just another religious leader or rabbi though Jesus is both prophet and rabbi mm-hmm. this is and this is the mystery and this is this is what requires some faith mm-hmm. not rational but supra rational belief and that is that god forever becomes one of us and and why this is important if if people listening to us struggle with how they feel about themselves one of the great realities of the christian faith is that we are so loved that god forever became one of us you talk about value on a human being right you talk about and so this is this is the mystery of what we call the incarnation in christian theology now other religious traditions and other folks respect jesus of nazareth honor him as a teacher and we can work together with that as we pray pray for them and want them to come to full faith. And so I don't want to denigrate anyone else who has deep respect for Jesus. But the scandal and mystery and truth of this story is that we have one time in history, truth and reality coming together perfectly, and the divine and human being joined forever.
0: What happened to Joseph? He, He drops off as you read the gospel accounts. You don't really hear anything else about him. You do hear more about Mary. Sure. What happened to Joseph?
1: Well, most uh, Christian records we have from the second and third centuries have Joseph uh, dying um, sometime when Jesus was a young adult. We have the story in Luke chapter two of Jesus being 12 years old in Jerusalem for his bar mitzvah and talking with the rabbis at the temple. And Joseph and Mary are both still, you know, they're still together at that moment. Right. But sometime between his young adulthood and when he starts his public ministry in his early thirties, uh, we have Joseph dying. He he apparently by tradition was a bit older than Mary, okay. not some father figure. We we we've again we've overdone that sometimes. He wasn't right. some you know gray bearded guy, but he was older and he passed away. And then Mary remains part of the story all the way um to almost the end of the first century where she's cared for by the apostle john until her death
0: yeah because when jesus is dying on the cross via crucifixion he actually turns to john his good friend yeah. and says behold your mother correct
1: and john from that day the, the scripture said john took her into his home
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um that would have been ultimately in ephesus and uh mary completed her earthly journey in ephesus a few years before john himself as the only one of the 12 apostles by the way to die a natural death
0: you know isn't that interesting so he becomes john becomes pastor of the church in ephesus which is turkey and and mary is a part of that church
1: yes she is wow yes she is and she's um, a highly respected highly revered and she's revered and respected by all christian traditions for her willingness to accept the message and the mission that God gave her, and her um, submission to her son, as it were, um, though she's plays this important part, uh, she knows who the Messiah is, and she herself is the recipient of grace. Hmm. Was there a Saint Nicholas? Who was this guy? Well, B- Bishop N- N- Bishop of Myra around 280 AD uh, is where the original story of St. Nicholas comes from. And this was a this was an amazing monk and bishop who gave away his fortune to the poor, who spent his time caring for children in particular, mm. uh, and caring especially for the people that were on the margins. And so that is the kind of historical kernel underneath the later traditions that emerge about St. Nicholas Day, uh, about, about children receiving gifts and this kind of thing. Uh, it has a historical kernel to it, um, but the imagery we use is all 19th century.
0: Okay, okay. Now, concluding thoughts from you, Dr. History, it's not just about Christmas. That's, that's wonderful, that's important, that's a necessary ingredient But there's an entire package here, isn't there?
1: Christmas begins the historical process. Jesus was born in order ultimately to die for the sins of the world and to be raised from the dead. And in fact, in Christian history, the Feast of the Nativity or Christmas was celebrated in a muted fashion in comparison to Good Friday and Easter, the season of Lent was far, of far greater importance. What we call from Ash Wednesday all the way through Eastertide and Easter, this is the heart and this is the core of Christianity. Christ's sinless life, his teachings, but we're not even saved by his teachings. We're saved by a sacrifice on the cross that, that brings justice and love together mm-hmm. and allows people to be liberated from sin and self and liberated to serve God and serve others. And so all that happens in the Christmas story, the beauty of it is a foreshadowing of what's going to be fully expressed in what we call the Easter story.
0: Dr. History, you've given us a wonderful history lesson, which is, of course, what we would would expect uh, regarding the biblical account and what really happened. But talk to us about the contemporary account. I mean, we've got we've got. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer. We've got Santa Claus dressed up in a red suit. We've got so many different things that we really need to sort out. When did When did all of that begin? What you're describing right now,
1: Uh, all of it has its, we can talk about uh, scattered bits and pieces for a thousand years, but all that you're describing about starts in the 1820s with Washington Irving and with Charles Dickens, with Clement Moore uh, and the night before Christmas, with Thomas Nast's picture of a jolly St. Nicholas in the 1880s. So between the 1880s, I'm sorry, 1820s, and 1880s is when all of the imagery and celebration happens. And one fun fact, Brian, is it wasn't until 1870 that Christmas was a federal holiday. There were states that would not make it a holiday because they had a much more puritanical background and they didn't want to attach um, kind of licentious partying activities to such a holy day. Yeah, okay, but
0: I, I, I want to just ask this question. So the prime if you were talking about uh, the life and death of Jesus, the right. ministry of Jesus on Earth, the focus had always been on his crucifixion and resurrection, correct?
1: That is, that, is, that is the highlight of the Christian year and the focus of most Christian devotion. With St. Francis and others in the 13th century, we begin to have virgin and child. With Martin Luther, you begin to put together some Christmas trees and presents in the, in the 1500s. And then there's all kinds of controversies. Between, between the 1500s and 1800s, there's, Christians are all over the map on whether we should celebrate this or not.
0: Wow okay so then part the of
1: it is they, were, they didn't want it to be related to the pagan festivals of saturnalia the pagan festivals of winter solstice where uh they would actually um have all kinds of feasting which the church wasn't against parties but all kinds of feasting around the end of winter you know the beginning of the longer days okay. but also there was a lot of Uh, a lot of feasting around kind of almost a Mardi Gras atmosphere of the, they would, they would celebrate a Lord of misrule and they would celebrate the leveling of the classes and all kinds of, um, all kinds of partying. And it was that, that most Christians said, no, we don't want, we don't want any part of that.
0: Okay. So maybe is it, is it kind of like this? A lot of, a lot of Christians in particular, they, they don't want to part, they don't want their kids to participate in Halloween. Which has become right. increasingly, you know, there's been an increasing focus on evil over the years yep. with Halloween. When I was a kid, okay, you dress up like Superman, go around the neighborhood, no big deal. Now it's, you know, witches and warlocks and demons and
1: exactly all sorts
0: of scary stuff. Could, could, and, but in, instead Christians oftentimes find themselves saying, okay, well, our church is going to put on a harvest party. Right. That's what the church
1: all- did. That's exactly what the church okay. did with this. They took, the Saturnalia Festival, the Yule Festival of Scandinavia. They took this and said, we're going to make it the Feast of the Nativity. It's okay to celebrate. Um, And then when the celebrations get out of hand, we got to bring it back into focus again. And so to this day, you will still find many, many Christians who are very skeptical. They're skeptical about Christmas. Uh, They're even skeptical about anything remotely connected to the Easter Bunny, not Easter itself with the resurrection of Jesus. They just don't want to be connected with what they see as other kinds of spiritualities, other kinds of pagan activities. And so that was a controversy. Christmas was illegal in Boston in the mid-17th century. And then once— It was illegal? It was illegal in Boston from the 1650s to the 1680s. And then by the 1700s, it was was being celebrated in a more muted fashion— By the way, when the Americans won the Revolutionary War, they stopped celebrating Christmas because it was a very British tradition uh, until the 19th century when it just began. Uh, A lot of different sociological changes happened. Uh, England was a friend again. Uh, The Victorian age hit. And now we can kind of together celebrate the goodness of this. Uh, children were treated much better and treated as a gift from God and not just a responsibility. So the 19th century brought a lot of positive changes, um, but they created the conditions where we could have a more uh, c- celebratory but not crazy Christmas.
0: Well, And then you've got to add into the mix, really taking this holiday onto steroids, Madison Avenue. This was just oh. a great opportunity for you know companies to sell their stuff.
1: Well, that's exactly what happened with Thomas Nast's picture of Saint Nick in the 1880s. It was Montgomery Ward that sponsored it. Sears <laughs> took it up. Um, you add to that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is 1939. Um, you know Irving Berlin wrote the song "White Christmas," right? He was a he was a Jewish immigrant, but he knew he knew what would sell in America, <laughs> and so so there is that element. And I. I want to just say to all of our listeners, I think celebrating the birth of Jesus is wonderful. I think celebrating family and celebrating these kinds of moments, I think they're perfectly permissible within the solid bounds of scriptural revelation. I respect others that might differ from that, but um, I can certainly understand why some would be a little bit skeptical at times. But it's not unusual for uh, the church to take what is positive about creation and and bring it into its fullness instead of just rejecting it altogether and and the light will begin to dawn um, ever more brightly after that day. So it's not a big leap to say the light of the world has come. And let's start celebrating that.
0: Wow, okay. Dr. History, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for taking the time and of course I wish you not just a Merry Christmas, But I wish you a wonderful, wonderful, prosperous, blessed New Year. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's my honor. Well, thank you for joining me in this edition of The Brian Sussman Show. I pray that the Lord blesses you and keeps you and makes his face to shine upon you. I pray you have a wonderful Christmas time. I know this could be a very sad time of the year for some people, because maybe you've lost a loved one, and my heart does go out to you. But more importantly... God's heart goes out to you as well. Uh, He comforts us in all of our needs. He's able to do that. And I hope you'll please call on him. If you're lonely, if you're missing someone, if you seem without hope or in desperation, he will supply all of your needs. He promises this according to his riches and his glory. And in the meantime, let us pray for a prosperous and healthy 2024. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe on any audio platform as well as YouTube or Rumble. Ryan Sussman, signing off.